This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 369, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with a little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show here on Drummer's Resource. And today we're going to continue with a series that I started a few sessions ago, which is called Five Favorites. And the first drummer we had, of course, was uh, the great Eric Singer, who is known, you know, for his work with Kiss and Alice Cooper. But we we really didn't focus on uh, those aspects of his career and really not even on his career. Instead, we talked about really five records or five drummers that had influenced him and that led us into a really wonderful conversation about music in general. And I got such an incredible response to this particular podcast that um, it inspired me to do some more. So, This is the second installment in the Five Favorites series, and it's with a drummer that needs no introduction. He's extremely well-known on the scene uh, in terms of his uh, funk and soul contributions played with, you know, Lenny Kravitz and New Edition and a whole lot of other folks. And that, of course, is the great drummer Zorro. Uh, For those of you who may not know, Zorro is one of my mentors in this business. He, um, you know, uh, really stepped up many years ago, back in, you know, probably around 2000, we became friends, and I was sort of pitching these ideas of, of, you know, getting into a larger conversation about the history and evolution of drumming and the drum set. And not a lot of people supported that idea when I first floated it, because I was not that well known. And really, there was no one that had a track record of doing that successfully. And so, Zorro was right there. He was like, this is a great idea. And we ended up, you know, writing our book together, uh, which is the commandments of early rhythm and blues drumming, which was an amazing experience for me. I, I, I gleaned a lot of, you know, those of you who've read Zorro's books over the years, not only his instructional books, but his motivational and inspirational books. Uh, you know that he's, he's truly one of the great uh, inspiring figures in the drumming community today. And I was lucky enough to glean a lot of that wisdom from him personally um, and use a lot of the lessons that I learned from him in my own uh, way of navigating this crazy life in music that we lead. So, uh, it's a it's a great honor and privilege, and I think you guys are going to be really excited. The conversation we had was amazing. Zorro has led an incredible life, a very inspirational life, really a rags-to-riches type of story. He's pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, and, um, you know, his attitude is incredible. And um, the stories he has to tell about his youth and the people he met uh, via these five records that we're going to talk about, I think you'll find really very interesting. I, I think it's one of the coolest conversations I've had yet with any of the guests on this podcast. So without further ado, I present Zorro. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass here. We are here with the one, the only, no one like him on this planet, Zorro. And Zorro, I just want to welcome you to the Daniel Glass Show. Daniel, it's great to be on your show, buddy. You're a buddy, a friend, and I'm happy to be with you. Awesome. So we got some really amazing uh, 
favorites that you uh, put down, and, and it's an interesting order. It's not necessarily in chronological order, but rather an order that you felt was uh, important in, in your development, in, in, your, in your life. So the first record we're going to start with is The Motown Story, which is uh, a five-album box set of sort of the first decade of Motown. And of course, uh, the classic Motown drummers are all on there. Benny Benjamin, Pistol Allen, Uriel Jones. You talk a lot about these guys, of course, in your clinics and in your books. You know, these are like the cats. So why did you, why this particular box set? Well, first of all, uh, taking you back to how Motown and I, you know, became one, is I grew up, uh, for those that don't know, I grew up in the early part of my life in South Central Los Angeles. I grew up in Compton in the 60s, you know, I was a kid in the 60s and in the 70s. But Motown was huge in my neighborhood, and I used to buy all the 45s, you know, 45s were big then, those were 45 single single records. And I would buy, and, and I had uh, seven brothers and sisters, and uh, four of them were older than me. And so they all had all the different Motown 45s, and a lot of the albums, many of the different albums by you know, Stevie Wonder, The Temptations, uh, Marvin Gaye, The Jackson 5, uh, The Four Tops, uh, Diana Ross and The Supremes. But this particular Motown box set is very representative of like a lot of the hits because, because in those days Motown was a lot of singles and then there were albums um, that were you know, big, but they were more a single-oriented machine. So this Motown box set represents my first and earliest influences of music that I loved and I grew up with. In fact, when I lived in Compton, the very first concert I attended, a neighbor saw that I had a propensity for rhythm because I was always banging on stuff. And she bought me tickets uh, at seven to go see Diana Ross and the Supremes and the Temptations at the Long Beach Civic Center. Wow. So I was seven years old, and that's when I saw... Uh, uh, Pistol and Uriel both playing live with uh, this one was playing with the Supremes and one with the Temps and then at the end of the concert they would all come out together now I was only seven I was not a drummer then I had no idea I would be a drummer but watching those cats and listening to that music I came home and I built my first ghetto drum set <laughs> okay wait let me just stop you because this is fantastic but my, <laughs> my question is um, you know, today when we when we think of box set, right, we think of something that's really beautifully packaged from, you know, the record label, which shows like some long retrospective. You actually, this was actually LP records, right? In a yeah. and in a you know in a in compilation a in a, in an actual box, not not a plastic thing, but in no. a, in a cardboard you know packaging. Um, so it, it's interesting to know because I think people don't necessarily box sets as such were not that common back in the day, right? I mean, no, they weren't. They individual weren't as, albums or forty fives. Yeah, they weren't that big then, but because it was like Motown's, you know, uh, I kind of cite that box set because actually I got that box set much later, but I was exposed to all the songs that would be on that box set during my era in Compton. In other words, all those singles, then 10 years when Motown, because Motown started like in 59. I think that box set came out in 70 or 71. And that, that was representative of those first 10 years that were slamming with hits after hits. Yeah. But actually that one for box sets was one of the nicest ones I had ever seen because it came with a beautiful booklet, oh, yeah. like the full album side with all the history of Motown, the pictures of the artist and the song discography. The other thing that was cool about that box set was that every tune opened up with a little story about the song. So Smokey Robinson and Barry Gordy would say, 
oh, this is how we came up with such and such. And then they'd go into the music. So it was kind of like a story album with the hits. Um, and they recently released that on CD, which is really cool. But it has sort of the backstories of some of those songs. But Motown was the thing that, 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 that ignited my, my spirit in the music. Again, I came home and I built the ghetto drum set. I took it on Compton Boulevard in the corner, set it up with a transistor radio, <laughs> put, so, put soul music on, and played for people to drop coins in my in my coin jar. And and I had um, Folgers coffee cans, almond roca cans, a wooden salad bowl with some wooden spoons, and I just commenced to jam it on the street. And it was predominantly, you know, Compton was a predominantly black neighborhood. So I think everybody got a kick out of this kid who looked like Alfalfa, who was just who, who was just Alfalfa from the Little Rascals, for those that don't know. And I was just grooving. And so that was like the beginning. I did not know I was going to be a drummer. I did not have a drum set. The drums wouldn't come for many years. But the vision of being one and seeing those guys play was kind of the whole starter of the whole thing. Well, and I love the way that it that you already had an entrepreneurial spirit about you. That you're like, <laughs> hey, man, I could you know take this. I could do this in my bedroom, or I could go hang out and do this on the street and put out the little can. And you know, that's that's awesome. That's well, I saw cool. Wino. I saw dudes in Compton like on the street, like with a guitar you know, and plan for change in the corners. So I'd already seen, well, these cats were 40, 50, and 60, but I saw cats doing that. I'm like, well, I'm going to go take my little drum set. And I took it in my red radio flyer wagon, all the pieces of the junk. And I was looking through junk trash cans to find stuff I could hit. And then, uh, but I had my little transistor radio and I put on like Wolfman Jack and, you know, soul music would come on. Anything that was going to come on was going to be funky. Yeah. And I would just start jamming to it. But that was the beginning. I wish I had That's a picture cool. of that. Yeah. <laughs> can, I have a question. Uh, can you paint a picture for us about what, that concert experience was like because you know to think about first of all long beach civic auditorium is kind of a legendary place a lot of amazing concerts went down there over the years especially back in the day in los angeles uh, area um but you know what was the scene like and you know i mean to see all those original bands in their original form it was pretty epic i mean i remember this woman uh her name was bertha and she felt uh she felt for my mother because my mother was a single immigrant from mexico city and bertha felt for her and she bought me tickets and the, the whole family so bertha picked us up in her cadillac her like 1957 cadillac <laughs> nice. with her cat eyeglasses and her chanel suit she was a woman who had some means and felt uh, sorry for my mother that she had all these kids and no fathers and we were poor so she drove us in her cadillac it was a beautiful sunny day and the long beach civic arena uh, civic center was a classic iconic uh place it was all surrounded by water and the long beach pier and it was just long beach in those days man i wish i wish they had they had preserved it all because it was incredible and then we had great seats you know kind of from the um where stage le where I could see from I could see the drummers from the uh, stage left or whatever, and I had a great uh, direct view of them. But seeing the Temptations and seeing uh, all of the, and Diana Ross and the Supremes all like physically there, the people you would see on the Ed Sullivan Show and all that, seeing them it was like that was my first witnessing of any form of a celebrity. You know what I mean? Somebody who you'd seen on television on on uh, on TV shows, Mike Douglas and Johnny Carson, and, and to see them in person when you're seven was like mesmerizing. And then to see these drummers playing these rhythms and jamming and the audience reaction. I mean, as a seven-year-old kid, I was enthralled. 
and the whole area was beautiful. It was all those pastel colors and the and the um, and the uh, and the and the ocean breeze and the palm trees and the uh, uh, the the pier and the lighthouse stuff. I mean, it was just it was an incredible experience for a kid who had no money, no means, uh, no support. It was like a dream come true to go to this free concert. And then when I left the concert with Bertha and my brothers and sisters, I was sitting behind her and I kept banging on her chair, <laughs> her car seat. Right. And my brothers and sisters were like, you need to stop that. You're driving her crazy. And Bertha was like, that's quite all right, honey. That's quite all right. I can see you're very excited about the concert. Aww. And that's that's all good. So it's very sweet. Uh, uh, but it was, it was the beginning, you know. Yeah. And and, uh, and I had came home and then I started playing those records all the time. And that, that dream or that vision of like banging on things never really left me. I hear but that. But that's how it all began. That's how it all began. Great story, man. Um, so let's let's radically change direction now, uh, and because the second item on your list here is uh, Frank Sinatra album. Uh, the album is "Come Dance with Me," uh, which was uh, arrangements were by the great Billy May. Of course, Frank Sinatra, in the course of his career, um, you know, worked with different very famous arrangers, um, uh, and. Uh, so Billy May, of course, was one of those great arrangers. Billy May had done, I think, some stuff with Count Basie, and you know he was one of the one of the greats. Uh, so, uh, you know, and and you put on here that the uh, two drummers were Irv Kotler and Shelley Mann, who of course were two of the great, um, you know, great uh, studio swing drummers of that period. So why is this record on your on your list? I could have literally put hundreds of different Frank Sinatra albums because my mother, uh, you know, she was raised in Mexico City. And she grew up in the and she was born in 32. So she grew up in the 40s. So she loved all the American singers and big band music. Frank Sinatra. She loved Frank Sinatra, Matt King Cole, Tony Bennett, all the crooners and, uh, you know, Dean Martin, Perry Como. But Sinatra was probably her all time favorite. So for as long as I can remember being alive. There was not a time when I wasn't bathed in Frank Sinatra recordings. And my mother was the type of woman who always uh, used music to inspire the family. So she would always find songs with very poignant, uplifting, encouraging uh, lyrics like High Hopes or Young at Heart and all these things. So she kind of filled my head with dreams. And Sinatra is just something that's just synonymous with my existence. It's there's no, and so I put this particular record. I, I own all the Sinatra albums, and and even though we were poor, the one thing we were rich in was music. My mother bought a lot of vinyl, and uh, we had the little old gold thing where you put your vinyl records in the little plat. I mean the 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 metal you know thing where you put all slide all your albums in the cheap phonograph re- record uh, yeah. machine, you know. But yeah. anyway, I, I loved the swing of this record. And my mother used to dance with me to these Frank Sinatra songs. You know, when, when I lived in Compton, she would dance with me to all these songs. And uh, now I had an incredible experience. We moved up to Oregon in 1971. So we moved from the set of Sanford and Son to the set of the Waltons, <laughs> completely to a little town called Grants Pass, Oregon, which was a culture shock if there ever was one. But one of the things my mother did was she scraped up uh, I don't know how she did it because we had nothing. We were living in a car, actually, when we moved up to Oregon. We were living in a 1962 Chevy Nova. And uh, and then eventually we got a tent. Uh, and then eventually we got a 13-foot trailer. And uh, that's how we started. But Frank Sinatra was coming to town. He came to Portland, Oregon. And, man, she sold everything we could get rid of, which wasn't much. But she got me tickets to go see Frank Sinatra in concert 
and I was 11 or 12. I was like 11 years old, and we went to Portland, Oregon to see him with the Nelson Riddle Orchestra, and it was epic to see Frank Sinatra live with, with the orchestra in his prime. Yeah. And uh, I'll never forget that my mother went right to the backstage area. She had a book called The Films of Frank Sinatra, and she was a huge fan, and she wanted to get an autograph. And so she went to the bodyguard and said, you know, could Mr. Sinatra sign this? And they kind of shooed us away and hushed us away. But I never forgot that she tried. I never forgot that she had the courage to go from the rafter seats all the way down there with her book. And it kind of made an impression on me to always try, you know. But anyway, the concert was incredible, and he did all of the all of the classic songs. So Frank Sinatra and me, you know, go hand in hand. Uh, and this record is just one of the real slamming big band swinging albums. There's so many that I grew up with, but uh, for somebody who maybe doesn't know Sinatra, there's no way you're not. This is not going to put a smile on your face. This album just kicks butt. It swings hard. Yeah, that's great. Well, you know. I mean, that's that's kind of obviously in my wheelhouse, and I've played a lot of this music over the years. And, you know, what? just a couple things come to my mind. Number one, that people tend to think of whenever they hear the word swing, they automatically think of like some kind of heavy-duty Charlie Parker bebop type stuff. And what you have to realize is that, you know, this kind of music was pop music of its day. It just moved in a in a different way. And in the same way that, you know, people think of like Al Jackson Jr. or... Uh, Steve Jordan or Levon Helm as being groove masters, you know, uh, guys that are just, they, they get so deep inside the pocket, right? Uh, back then, these guys like Shelly Mann and Alvin Stoller and Irv Kotler, they were groove masters, you know? Totally. And, and ha- having played this music myself, first of all, to drive a big band, that's that's a whole skill set. But to really put that pocket in the right place so that it has that it's incredibly danceable, but also feels incredibly relaxed, because that was kind of the magic of Sinatra, right? Was that he was he was cool. So it was totally danceable, but Sinatra, kind of the whole thing is very chill at the same time, right? So you have to kind of get that happening in the drums. Um, so, you know, I don't, t- t- tell me about what you took away from the drummers, or at least as a drummer from this kind of music. Is that they they operated the same way a great funk drummer would operate. Uh, a great R&B drummer, a really great R&B drummers really just serve the song, and the song is king. Not the groove, not the beat, not the fills, but the song is king. And great R&B drummers, you know, that were part of ensembles, for, for instance, and we'll talk about them next, but Earth, Wind & Fire, they never played anything that didn't just totally make the music work. And all of the Sinatra drummers, and he had so many different drummers from so many different eras, you know, record with him. Uh, he had more drummers record with him than played with him live, but he had all the best guys. But they all had one thing in common. These guys knew how to play the parts. They were groove masters. As you said, it's just a groove then was a triplet swing groove. It wasn't, you know, but but all the great funk and R&B drummers you named, they all came out of the swing era because it didn't just come out of a vacuum. They grew up listening to all the stuff that swung, which were the popular styles of music. Therefore, when they played R&B, even the James Brown cats, it all swung because they were coming from the world of triplets. They just weren't playing a jazz pattern, per se. But what I took away from the Sinatra drummers, uh, and especially you know guys like Sonny Payne on the, uh, the album, you know, it might as well be Swing and Live at the Sands. I mean, just incredible economy of notes, and the setups were just a work of art. They were really like a Michelangelo painting. 
they, they were just like, oh, my God, of all the things you could play, this is all he chose to play. And just the setups on, on, on that record, it might as well be Swing featuring Count Basie and Quincy Jones arrangements. It's just unbelievable. It's, in fact, I still play those, some of those songs. I demonstrate them at clinics because I just go, man, this is sw- – Sonny Payne was one of the swingingest, hardest swinging drummers I've ever seen or heard. And to me, those are groove masters. But like you said, then it was the popular music of the day. They were just different groups. But to me, they were just as much of a groove drummer as an R&B drummer of today. And, and, and the other thing is that I took away, um, well, from the music in general, not just the drummers, but man, these guys could write some lyrics, write some arrangements, and write some tunes. I mean, you take that song called The Coffee Song. Oh, yeah. You know? The 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 politician's daughter was drink for was fine for drinking water, you know. Uh, it's a song about coffee in Brazil. I mean, you're yeah. just going the clever the cleverness of their words was incredible, like just their craft. So it's just it's music that I think will always touch people for every generation. So I encourage everybody out there to check out this album, and it'll lead you on a path to many others. Yes, and I think th- these are sort of the universal lessons that certainly you you make in in your books and clinics, and of course the book we did together, you know, which yeah. which definitely you know, is talking about blues music and st- styles of music that swing that were that were pop styles. But I think, um, yeah, I mean it it is uh, this is why we need to learn about our past. Why it's you know it's, it's not okay just to stop. Uh, with what we're into today, but say, well, what sure. came before that, and how can that in- influence the way we play, whatever it is that we're into? So, and I, I have a theory that anything that's great—this is just my own personal theory—anything that's a great work of art, whether it's music, painting, writing, or anything that we're allowed to witness many years later, we weren't allowed to uh, see an interview with Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci because that that medium didn't exist. But any art form that has been able to be translated over generations and generations. If it's great, it's actually great for all times, even though it was created in a certain generation, a certain time in existence. But when something is great, like a Frank Sinatra album, like a piece by Mozart, like a a Van Gogh painting, the Beatles, anything that's great, that's truly an artistic uh, expression of greatness uh, coming from the artist, will affect every subsequent generation that's allowed to view it, listen to it, watch it, whatever the medium is. And it always affects people. And you know this because you've taught for years and so have I. Anytime I've exposed students to great music they've never heard, they didn't grow up hearing it on the radio like I did or like you did. But the minute I expose them to it, they just go, wow, this is awesome. Proving that you don't have to hear it 50,000 times on the radio to like it. All you have to do is hear something great or see a great movie, or read a great uh, novel, which is why people would still read something by Victor Hugo from, you know, hundreds of years ago. So great, it's great for all time. And I think people need to go back and find out what is the, what are some of the great uh, music uh, of, uh, that came from America that's incredible, you know, that has affected all of us. And it, you've been there many times in California. They have a place called The Grove and the, uh, the Americana, which is a cool, outdoor, beautiful L.A. kind of mall. You know, the music they always play there is always that music that makes you feel good. They always play like Dean Martin, Sinatra, stuff that just makes you happy, makes you want to buy stuff. <laughs> you know, because it puts not, you in that good mood. <laughs> that's right. They're not. They're no fools. They are no fools. No, but it's happy music. It makes your soul yeah. feel good. Well, speaking of happy music, let's move on to your third selection here, which, of course, 
I think is something that people now will absolutely associate with you, and that's uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. And of course, uh, the record you've chosen is That's the Way of the World, which is, you know, I remember when this record came out in 1975, that was the first time I, growing up as a, as a kid in Hawaii, yeah. uh, got hip to what to Earth, Wind, and Fire, what their whole thing was about. Um, so 1975, That's the Way of the World, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Give us your take as to why this is so influential. Well, first of all, you have to understand that uh, uh, this is the album that really put Earth, Wind, and Fire on, on the map big time. They, uh, they had about five albums prior to this, and this was a period of time when record companies signed groups and really worked with them over a period of years to develop. That has gone away a long time ago. So had they given up on Earth, Wind & Fire before this album, we wouldn't know the incredible Earth, Wind & Fire that we do. They had a couple of other mini hits before this, but you know, not huge, but they had one called Head to the Sky. Now, I grew up listening to all of these records, again, not knowing that I would become a drummer because I didn't actually start playing until about 1976, 1977. But this album came out, and what people don't know, most people know a lot of the songs from this album. What, what, are, some of the, the, what are some of the big songs? Okay, Shining Star comes from this album, and a, a beautiful ballad that's still on the radio every single day called That's the Way of the World. Then the other big, huge ballad hit was called Reasons. So those were the three big sort of mega hits that came from it. But if you look closely at the album cover, it says, you know, original motion picture soundtrack. So there was a movie called That's the Way of the World that may be one of the most terrible movies ever made. It's probably <laughs> in the top 100. It was a horrible movie. It was Harvey Keitel's first uh, role, uh, leading role. And it was about the music business. And Earth, Wind, and Fire in the, was in the movie, and they showed him recording. It was about a band struggling to make it. I've and seen they that movie, by the way. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's like it's a gritty kind of, New York seventies yeah, kind of thing, right? Yeah, totally. And it's and and, the, and Earth, Wind, and Fire in the movie is called the group. <laughs> Aren't <laughs> like they, they like driving come, around in a van everywhere? Yeah, uh -huh, yeah. Uh -huh. they show them in the recording studio. Well, the movie bombed, but for some reason, serendipitously, the DJ started playing the soundtrack. And it was just one of those things. And, and I've become, you know, friends with all the guys from Earth, Wind & Fire for the last 40 years. But they told me that this, this, is the, this album is their What's Going On Marvin Gaye album. Earth, Wind & Fire's That's the Way of the World is their What's Going On album. It's that, it's that epic turning point. Now, uh, the, the album was arranged by a guy named Charles Stephanie. And that was a key to the Earth, Wind & Fire sound because he brought to them – he was a hip new, uh, um, Chicago arranger, and he's the one who kind of taught him how to bring in all these elements in their music and bring out sort of the influences of jazz, Brazilian, uh, Latin, funk, rock, and put it in a way that was accessible. So the album is, is an incredible record. It really is what set the stage for them, and, and it, these were some of the – among some of the first songs I began to learn on the drum set once I finally got a, drum, a real drum set in like 76 or nearly 77. And uh, there was a song there called Happy Feeling. It just had a cool drum beat. Uh, there's another song called Yearnin' Learnin' that had also another funky drum beat. The whole album was just great. And it inspired me. And those were some of the first uh, tunes that I began to learn to play. And also I would, this is me, the dreamer in me. I bought this album and then the next one and the next one. I would literally daydream you know, in my uh, in my bedroom and flip open the album covers and daydream of the day I would meet them and, and play with them. And that's I would just fantasize and I would write it in my diary. Well, the very first name gig that I ever did 
1983 with a, a name artist is that dream came true and I got to play uh, for Philip Bailey, the lead singer. And that's the guy with the beautiful high falsetto. But I had met um, I had met the drummer Ralph Johnson uh, at a concert in when I, I moved to uh, Beverly Hills in 1980, and I there was a concert called Jesus at the Roxy. It was a gospel concert featuring the radio said featuring members of Earth, Wind, and Fire at the Roxy with an all-star L.A. band and all-star appearances by Sarita Wright, Stevie Wonder's wife. And yeah. man, I immediately I immediately went and bought my ticket. And uh, and I was prepared to meet those guys. I waited till the concert was completely over, and everybody drifted out. And then I walked on stage when I saw Ralph Johnson and his drum tech, and I introduced myself and told him I was new in L.A. And he said, "Do you study?" I said, "Not currently." And he said, "Would you like to?" And so from right there, from going up to meet him, the next week I started studying with Ralph at his house, became became his friend. And a few years later, then he recommended me to Philip. Said, you know, you got to hire Zorl to do this tour with you. So it was Earth, Wind, and Fire. And you know, those guys are still my friends forty some years later. And I and I work with most all those guys in the in the band on different projects. I played with Al McKay uh, from Earth, Wind, and Fire. I used to play at all the Nam show with the Earth, Wind, and Fire All Stars. And so this 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 music is, you know, some of that desert island music. If I was on a desert island. And they said, what albums, you know, it'd have to be a Sinatra album, a couple of EWF albums, some Motown. You know, these are albums that I could not live without. And you, and you go back to them over and over again, you know, those, those, yeah. yeah. They still, yeah. they still, they still sound great. And I was recently talking to Verdine White, uh, Maurice's brother, who was the founder of the group. And uh, Verdine told me, you know, he said, we used to spend in their heyday, they used to spend nearly a million dollars on, on production budget for the album. Wow. And that really was a revelation to me. It was like, no wonder why they sound so great. This wasn't like a $10,000 album project. They spent a million dollars in the recording studio with the arranging and the time and the horns and the strings and the and just perfecting this music. That's why it sounds like a million bucks. You yeah. don't get anything great for nothing. And anyway, so these are records, Earth, you know, uh, That's the Way of the World. And after that came Spirit, All in All, I Am. These are... These are epic records that would inspire anybody. Uh, but that's that's my connection to Earth, Wind, and Fire. You know, I'd like to just also bring up the point about Maurice White. And, you know, Maurice White, if people don't know, was, in addition to Philip Bailey, who had the real high uh, falsetto uh, tenor voice, Maurice was the lead singer on a lot of the other really big hits uh, that, that Earth, Wind, and Fire had. He was the leader of the band. And he was a drummer and i'm sure he's playing drums on some of that stuff but his his trajectory goes much farther back um you know he was a, a, a he was in in the originally in the chicago blues scene uh mm-hmm. he he was a session drummer with chess records okay records cobra records he worked with a lot of the great people from that era like etta james uh and then he he was a drummer for ramsey lewis uh and so you know who was a kind of an originator of soul of the soul sound um, and so he was already kind of well known in the music industry when he started um, Earth, Wind, and Fire. But but do you have any sense of of you know did you did you did you know Maurice and did you talk with him about sort of that transition how he went from being a, a '60s blues and soul artist with these kind of sort of regional type scenes to turning all that into Earth, Wind, and Fire in the 70s, you know, which is such a bigger, more epic kind of a sound, and obviously more mainstream. Well, yes, I did know Maurice, and he was an awesome cat. 
he was an, he was an incredible drummer, and he did play on many Earth, Wind, and Fire hits, uh, especially in the early days. It, the, the The drumming on all the records is a combination of either Maurice, his brother Freddie, uh, and Ralph Johnson. Ralph Johnson was the first drummer of Earth, Wind, and Fire because Maurice was the leader. He played drums, but then Ralph was the drummer. Then eventually, on this album, all I mean, uh, that's the way of the world. Maurice brought in his brother Fred to join the group, and now they had two drummers, and they played <clears throat> two drummers live. Uh, but Maurice, you know, Maurice was a visionary. He always had a vision. In fact, everybody when he left uh, when he left Ramsey Lewis, he was getting paid good money as a sideman. It was a great Ramsey was huge. It was a great gig. So it's kind of like leaving like whatever's a happening group today to go start your own group. And people go, well, what are you doing? You're crazy. Like, uh, and, and when he would explain to people, uh, was Earth, Wind & Fire was unlike any other band. They were a message band. They were, they were, they were singing about the consciousness of the world and, and the physical uh, human condition of the spirit and the soul. It wasn't like a, like, like, like a lot of Motown pop songs that were kind of, you know, just surfacey kind of stuff. They were really deep. But Maurice carried that vision very deeply, and everybody thought he was totally crazy. Interestingly enough, a lot of people don't know, and Jim Brown, the football star, you know, the iconic uh, running back before O.J. Simpson, was Earth, Wind & Fire's manager. He's the one who wow. helped put them on the map in Los Angeles. Uh, and they, uh, there's, there's a classic story when all the Earth, Wind & Fire guys show up to Jim Brown's house in the Hollywood Hills. He was a legendary football star, like a movie guy. <laughs> he answers the door completely buck naked, completely, <laughs> just completely naked and just come on in, guys, like just this proud man in his body. <laughs> and they were all like these young guys like, huh? <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's funny. His son goes to school with my son. And uh, I'm looking forward to running into him to tell him, you know, thanks, not, not for your football stuff, but for helping put Earth, Wind & Fire on the map. But Maurice had a vision of that group, and he, he had it crystal clear what he wanted it to be. Of course, no one at the time understood it. Nobody believed him, but he was just a deeper cat. And uh, if people are interested, they should read. He, he had a memoir that came out just shortly after he passed where he tells a lot of his stories. But he's one of the greatest um, musicians on the planet. He's the founder of that sound, that vision, and yet a lot of people don't know him because when you're in a big group like that, unless you're a true diehard fan, it's hard to know who the, the, all, every guy is. It's different than when you're in a rock band and there's one lead singer. When you're in a band the size of Earth, Wind & Fire, it's, people don't always know who Maurice White was, but he is the founder of the sound, and, and, he, and yet the other thing they didn't know is he's 10 years older than everybody else in the band. So he was this experienced guy in his late 20s, bringing in his brother Verdine, who's like 18 and 19, and he was the one who knew about the music business. So they all followed him, and they followed him to huge success. But they they were uh, they were epic, and I think their music was world music before there was such a term. Yes, they really they to me what they did as a band is what Duke Ellington did for jazz. They sophisticated R and B. They took it out of that realm where it was the pop Motown thing or the James Brown two chords through the whole song. And they took it to this harmonic place where it was like jazz harmony and, and, and vocals. And, and they just sophisticated it and they brought in these world elements that weren't in, in music at the time. You could hear the Latin influence. You could hear the African thing. He brought the kalimba, the African yes. instrument, into their sound. So they, they did it all in such a <clears throat> magical way. They sophisticated funk. 
They made it like like what Duke Ellington did. They made it classy. They made it elegant. And yet, at the same time, it was all uh, it had pop sensibilities. You could sing to it. People love songs like uh, September and and Shining Star. And even though they might not know the names when they hear them, they just go wow because it's those vocals, it's those hooks, it's those harmonies and arrangements. So anyway, that's. Uh, but I have played- just to to comment on what you were going to say, which I, I agree with wholeheartedly that people today we just Earth Wind and Fire is one of those things that all of us know. All of us know a bunch of tunes by them, and we just sort of take that for granted. But it's it's hard to just imagine how revolutionary this was. And what I was going to say is it it it. You know, thinking again about the history of R and B, you think James Brown, but you can go back further to like Little Richard's band, The Upsetters, or to uh, uh, Ike Turner's band, The Kings of Rhythm. You know, who, those were the bands that that were doing that thing in the fifties, and you can already see you know a bunch of guys on stage, crazy colorful outfits, you know, uh, choreograph choreographed dance moves, you know, like it's a, it's a show, you know, and, and that you could trace back, you know, to the big bands or to Lewis Jordan or whatever. Yeah. So, but, um, I think, I think that part of Earth, Wind and Fire's magic is the anonymity of the members. And I, I, I don't know if this is true, but I would think that maybe that was a thing that like Maurice White said, look, it's not going to be about this individual star or that individual guy within the band. It's about this experience that you have. And we're not going to necessarily push the individual personalities. Because that was something about Earth, Wind & Fire that was unique, I think, or in, different than a lot of other bands, where it was just really like this band vibe, you know? Yeah. And then this this guy would emerge, and that guy would have a solo. Yeah, could be. I think a lot of it, too, was, you know, when you have a band that's that big, because uh, anytime you have, like, uh, and it's different, because in the big band days, there were individual stars that were featured as part of the big band. Yeah. That was kind of part of the, the era. But in the R&B days, there's a lot of, uh, unless those unless those individual people went solo, like Lyle Richie left the Commodores, when he was in the Commodores, you know, not everybody knew the n- names of the members of the Commodores. I think the bigger the band, the harder that is to be. And, you know, unless a guy goes solo, because in rock and roll, bands are smaller. And there's generally like one singer. He's the main guy, you know, or the Beatles, there's two guys. So when there's only four guys to remember, I think that's <laughs> that, that's part of it. Or when there's only one guy, you know, David Lee Roth and Van Halen, it's like, you know, it's David Lee Roth. But R&B was different, you know. And uh, But one thing people don't know when they hear all those vocals on the Earth, Wind & Fire record, I mean, there's a gang of vocals. It did so many incredible harmonies. It's only those two. It's only Maurice White and Philip Bailey doing every single vocal on those recordings. They just layered and layered and layered a million parts. But it's two guys. That's Um, incredible. Live was different. But anyway, they're they're a band everybody should check out. They're timeless. And they're still out there doing it. They are. Philip's out there. I just spent some time with them the other day. Philip... Verdine and Ralph are the only originals, but they're still there doing it, and they still sound great. And it's always an incredible experience. I've seen Earth, Wind & Fire, you know, like, you know, saw them at Vegas, and I saw them, you know, at, uh, like, the U.S. Open. They did a whole thing there, but I've seen them, <laughs> you know, in different settings. But it's it's just, like, beyond tight, and, you know, that sound is, is incredible and very worth seeing, for sure. You know, always one of the one greats. Of the, one, uh, one of the concerts that changed my life is uh, after I met Ralph in 1980, uh, in 1981, uh, he helped me or he wrote me a recommendation letter and I went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And that was in 81. And so I'm just a student there at Berkeley. And uh, just so happens that I'm friends with the guys from Earth, Wind & Fire, which was very cool. And Earth, Wind & Fire came to Providence, Rhode Island. This is from when the album Rays was huge and they had the hit song Let's Groove. So they were huge. This is 1981. 
And I remember Ralph inviting me to the concert. So I invited my roommate. We took the bus up to Providence. And Providence Civic it, Center? Yeah, huh, Providence uh-huh, Civic yeah. Center. And at 18 years old, I felt incredibly cool that I'm being invited backstage and to the concert and up to the dressing room to listen to the whole new entire album. Because the album wasn't out yet. The single, Let's Groove, was out. And they played the whole album for me upstairs. And, and I hung out with all of them. And, you know, again, these were the guys that I used to look at the album cover three, four years earlier and dream about meeting them. And now, I'm, so it was, it was epic. And that's when it was the original lineup is 80 81 it was still all the all the guys and then eventually it changed but uh so i've gotten a chance to see some incredible uh concerts in my life yeah great well let's move on uh to uh record number four uh this is now we're going to go in more of a fusion direction so the many facets of zorro here many. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh as are probably most musicians you know multifaceted uh, so this is Alphonse Muzan, Alphonse Muzan, uh, kind of a, a, a very, um, he just unfortunately, I think he passed last year, is that correct? Yes. Passed mm-hmm. away last year. Uh, but he was a, 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 a fierce uh, R&B style, but fusion drummer, heavy yeah. fusion drummer, uh, who, you know, a lot of people do compare him to Billy Cobham, uh, maybe not as well known. And um, I remember when you and I uh, did a clinic together at the... Uh, P- the PASIC convention of 2009, each mm-hmm. of us chose some different tunes that we played, you know, oh, yeah. uh, shuffle, different shuffle tunes, and you chose this tune uh, of his. It was called The Ram and the Scorpio, right? Yeah, it was and a so, crazy fast fusion super shuffle. Super crazy fast shuffle. Now, that's the record you've chosen is called Virtue, and I don't think that tune's on this, but talk about Alphonse and uh, his his influence on you and what he's, what he's all about. Yeah, okay, so first of all, the way that I became familiar with Alphonse was completely solely by accident. Um, I was, uh, you know, again, I was uh, 17, living in Eugene, Oregon. We had moved from the little town of Grants Pass, which was, you know, super small. We moved to Eugene, which was bigger, and they had an actual big record store with a jazz department. So I was, you know, going through this, you know, record shop in the jazz section, and just, you know, I'm a young musician exploring. I remember I had just bought my first modern drummer across the street at, at, uh, at a music shop, and now I'm going across to the jazz record store, and I'm thumbing through the albums. You know, I don't know who all the people are, but I stumble upon this uh, record by this guy. It says Alphonse Mazan. It's this purple cover with this cool guy who's got some shades and an Applejack leather hat, and I'm like, you know, just the album cover. I've always been sort of into style, as you know. I've always been into – I got that from my mother. Hats. <laughs> I, was, I was always into this from when I was a kid. I wore scarves since I was seven years old. So I always like panache style fashion. And so I thought, this guy looks cool. I wonder – it's in the jazz section. I wonder what he does. And so I flipped the album over, and there's a picture of this guy with a huge drum set, like a sonar drum set. And it said under the caption, it said, if at all possible – Please listen to the Muzan drum solo in stereo, the, 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 you know. And so I was like, oh, well, this guy's a drummer. So I just bought the record not knowing a thing about the guy based on the look of the album cover. And then when I saw that it said, please listen to the Muzan drum suite in stereo, I'm like, okay, this must be something worth listening to. So I took it home. The first cut on side one was a song called Master Funk, and it was just just a funky groove, you know, and and um, and then I played the rest of the record, and then I played his drum solo. I was like, "Dang, this dude's awesome!" And so Alphonse became like a, an early influence in my playing. Right after I discovered that record, I went back to the record store, and then I began to buy every single solo album that he had. 
Now, not not more than right after I graduated from high school, you know, in Eugene, 1980, I moved down, like I said, to Beverly Hills. So not knowing what to do, I there was a, a catalog. Zildjian had a symbol catalog. It was a setup guide, pretty thick. And in there, it had the bios of all the Zildjian drummers, right? And it would say, you know, um, you know, Hal Blaine, you know, Redondo Beach, California, where, wherever they were from, it had their name and their bio and like, and, and it said Alphonse Mazan, Burbank, California, and John Robinson, Tarzana, California, you know, whoever was in there. And so <clears throat> I just got to thinking, I'm like, I wonder if these guys are in the phone book, you know, the phone directory. And so I, I'm not going to mention the other drummers that I called, but I, they're all famous and legendary. There was four or five drummers that I called that day and asked directory assistants for their numbers, and I managed to get all of their phone numbers. And uh, they were in the they were listed in the book, not the union, but just the directory assistants. And so I, the four drummers that will remain nameless. Uh, I mean, I was nobody. I was just a kid, just saying, "Hey, I'm a big fan. I just moved to LA." And one of them hung up on me. The other one was like, "How did you get this number? Um, <laughs> don't call me again." Um, well, I called Alphonse. I was nobody, an 18 year old kid. And I, he talked to me for two hours. We became immediate friends. He invited me to a rehearsal to see him and Herbie Hancock. And then he invited me to his concert at Redondo Beach Concerts by the Sea. I'm this 18-year-old kid. Uh, we become friends. Uh, we, we remain friends. And then three years later, I'm playing with Philip Bailey. Five years later, I'm touring with the New Edition, the biggest R&B group at the time. And Alphonse is supporting me. He comes to the concert. He comes to see me with Lenny Kravitz. He brings his kids. So we have this long history. We remain friends. And then Alphonse also played with a group called Larry Coriel in the 11th House, oh, yeah. which, was, which was a pioneer fusion band uh, alongside Mahavishnu Orchestra. So he used to tell me about stories about him and Billy Cobham because they were kind of uh, arch enemies and rivals in the world of fusion. And Alphonse was, you know, always super stylish and always, you know, wore, you know, pimped out leather suits and bell bottoms and shades and, you know, and, and big cuffs. And, you know, he was like your full on rock star playing fusion. And, you know, and, and that was not Billy's thing. But they were kind of arch enemies. So Alphonse would show up to the concert in a limousine with two super hot chicks on both sides. And, he, <laughs> and, he'd, and he'd get up there and play in his snakeskin platform boots you know, he was just that guy. He's just going to go for it. But Alphonse had this uh, – he was very tenacious, and that was the name of his record label. He was tenacious. But he was he, – he carried himself with a sense of confidence and pride, but he wasn't arrogant is what I want to say. Like people who didn't know him kind of would think, you know, he's arrogant because he's so flamboyant. But he was a super sweet-hearted guy. But he just carried himself with a presence. He knew who he was. He believed in himself. And, uh, and in fact – I've I visited with him just before he passed. Uh, me and Stanley Clark spent the whole day with him, and we were optimistic that he was going to recover. And I had uh, started a campaign to raise money for him for this cancer that he had, and a lot of drummers were sewing into it. And he went to Mexico to get this uh, this surgery stuff done. And I was about to call him, you know, because we had spent the whole day together in a few weeks and. Uh, later, then he went to Mexico, and I was about to call him. And just before I was about to call him, his son called me and said, it's just, I got bad news. I just want to let you know that my father passed. Now, it was devastating. I spoke at his funeral. The last book he was reading was the book I gave him. I wrote a book called Soar, wow. Nine Proven Keys for Unlocking Your Limitless Potential, and he had it by his bedside. 
And his son said, I wanted you to know that your book, my dad was, my dad was reading your book. It was the last thing he read. So I spoke at the funeral and totally broke up and, and just, you know, you know, choked up. And I said, you know, you guys might not know this about Alphonse, but he, he kind of adopted me like a son. He took me under his wing. And besides that, a lot of times when you're, as you know, when you're first coming up, a lot of people are there to help you. But sometimes with guys that have egos, when they see that you're starting to do something really big or you're doing something that they didn't do or you're on the cover of a magazine they weren't on the cover of, depending on their level of security, some guys all of a sudden aren't nice to you anymore. And I had that happen. I had that happen to me a lot. I had a lot of guys that loved me when I was the young 18, 19, 20-year-old guy trying to break in, ready to give me a helping hand. Then as soon as I did something they didn't do, all of a sudden they were jealous and they weren't such an advocate anymore. Alphonse was never that way. He would always send me emails whenever I was on television, whenever I was in a magazine. He'd say, oh, man, sorry, man, so proud of you, man, Alphonse, man. You're doing it, bro. You're doing it, man. I love you. I love you. You know, he was just that guy, super cool. supportive, never intimidated. Just, But I always honored him. I said, man, you're one of my biggest influences. And I always told the story about you're the only guy who, who took my phone call when I was nobody. You know, yeah. and that says a lot about him. And I, sh I shared that all at the funeral. And it was devastating to me that he died because he was not that old. Yeah. And uh, and Larry Coriel was at the uh, the guitar player that he played for for years. Who has also the, since passed away since then. I mean, he was at the funeral yeah. and uh, they were wondering who they were going to get as a drummer to do the, the summer tour. And then he passed away like six months later. Yeah. So uh, I consider myself uh, blessed and fortunate to have known this fiery jazz fusion drummer i encourage people to go check out the work he did with mccoy tyner he used to play with roberta flack and he was a boyfriend in, in fact at one time he played with larry larry coriel's 11th house miles davis but he like you said he's kind of he's more of one of the unknown uh fusion heroes but to me he was one of the funkiest of all the fusion drummers yes you know he just had that funky element to him and uh and i loved him there's a lot of great video footage, actually, of Alphonse, because I think in the last few years also, I mean, there's there's some of the older stuff, which is really cool from that 70s period, but uh, he was, he was the last few years, he was really getting into it. He was, I know he was on social media, he'd be commenting on Facebook and all that kind of stuff, and he was, he never, never stopped charging forward, yeah. oh. um, you know, ever. He always, always had his thing going on. So it's, it's cool, and uh, he, he kept the huge drum sets. He, he had, I remember, uh, he always played with those almost vertical ride symbol, yeah. you know, with the ride yeah, symbol, yeah, yeah. like, uh, uh -huh. kind of like Indugu, you know, where it's yes, like flat, Indugu, yeah. or Al Foster. And, uh, so that was kind of that, kind of a remnant of that 70s style that he still kept, but really burning, really burning. All yeah, right, well, he, we'll move on, but yeah, everyone should check out the work of Alphonse yeah. Bazan. The solo albums were great, and then the work with Larry Coriel's 11th House. Oh, yeah, and that's, that's in the world of fusion jazz, that is definitely some, some pioneering stuff. Muzon, <laughs> I should mention, is M-O-U-Z-O-N, Alphonse Muzon. Yeah, um, A-L-P-H-O-N-S-E, Alphonse yeah. Muzon. Yeah. Right. Cool. Well, speaking of uh, raging, destructive, and critical, uh, put a hurt on you drummers, we're going to end this list with... Uh, with Buddy Rich. And, you know, it's, it's doing this series with different drummers. Uh, Eric Singer was the, was the first uh, guy that, that I had on where we talked about these five favorites and uh, Buddy was his first guy. And I'm sort of going, man, you know, is every, every drummer could easily include Buddy Rich on this list. Uh, you know, so, but at the same time, I think it's important because every drummer has a different experience of Buddy. And I think it's important mm -hmm. that we, you know, continue to celebrate Buddy 
you know, there's a lot of footage of him out there today, but it, it's hard to to maybe for younger drummers to realize just what a overwhelming force he was over drumming over everyone's life uh, back when he was alive. You know, back when we were all coming up. I mean, there was there mm-hmm. was there was Buddy, and then there was everyone else <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. You know, he was in a in a category of his own in the world of sports. He would have been like the Tiger Woods of, of uh, the Tiger is to golf. There's a lot of golfers, and then there's Tiger. And then in the 80s or 90s, there was a lot of basketball players. Then there was Michael Jordan. Now maybe it's LeBron James or whatever the world's greatest athlete is. Uh, you know, the, who's the guy who won 11 gold medals? The the the, oh, the, the swimmer, the Michael, swimmer, Michael Phelps. Yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of swimmers, and then there's Michael Phelps. So Buddy was clearly the most iconic drummer ever. And uh, I first got familiar with Buddy. In, um, you know, uh, like I said, the first issue I ever bought of a modern drummer was one with Gene Krupa on the cover. And then through kind of reading that, I would discover who this Buddy Rich guy was. And I think at that same jazz record store, I, I bought an album called The Roar of 74. I also stole a downbeat magazine from the library of the Rogue Community College because I saw this Buddy Rich guy on the cover, and I didn't want to give the magazine back. I said, nobody's going to care about it but me. It's just sitting there, and it's never been checked out. So anyway, I, I read this whole downbeat interview with Buddy Rich, and, uh, and I, I got fascinated to find out who is this guy. So I bought the album called The Roar of 74, and uh, which is an incredible record. Obviously, he has hundreds of them, and then later I would go discover all those other albums. But The Roar of 74 was my introduction. And the first song, I believe, on side one uh, uh, was like Time Check. And uh, and then Nutville, there was Senator Sam. He, the whole album was just, I was like, whoa, this is. And I, but I was familiar with Big Band because my mother, you know, raised me again on Sinatra, Glenn Miller. She loved Big Band stuff. I just didn't know who Buddy Rich was. And uh, I should, and I should this- point out, Zorro, that the cover of The Roar of 74 has Buddy in this like gnarly uh like muscle car you yeah. know like it's like a you know it's like all been done thing. yeah yeah exactly and it's and it and he's sitting in there with the helmet on just looking like he's gonna he's gonna beat the crap he's out gonna of him. Roar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he's gonna he, he's gonna get out there on the track and he's gonna waste you exactly you're gonna be it in, in an Essel, you're gonna be in a volkswagen spicoli <laughs> uh, van and he's gonna just yeah buy you but no it's a classic uh, iconic album cover so anyway i fell in love with that album started trying to cop all the Buddy Rich stuff. And then at that particular time, he was on the Johnny Carson show a lot. So every time he would come on the Johnny Carson show, after I discovered him, my mother would say, son, son, come, come to TV. Buddy Rich is on the Johnny Carson show right now. You're going to come see him. So she would, you know, scream at me, whatever I was doing at 11 o'clock at night, I'd go and see Buddy. And, you know, you saw him too. He was always on the Tonight Show. It was incredible. And then one day she, she watched him and she said, uh, I just know. I just know you're going to meet him one day, son. I just know you're going to meet him. I'm like, I hope you're right, Mom. I hope you're right. I'd love to meet him. Anyway, so uh, then again, I'm down in L.A., uh, Beverly Hills, 1980. I'm walking on Rodeo Drive, the famous uh, boulevard, Rodeo Boulevard, and Rodeo Drive. And all of a sudden, out from my peripheral, I spot a man at a streetlight talking to another guy. I'm going, that, that looks like Buddy Rich. As I get closer, the focus comes in. I'm like, that's Buddy Rich. So I immediately crossed the street, almost got hit by a car. I mean, it wasn't looking, just made a beeline to Buddy Rich. I stick my hand out and I go, Buddy Rich. And, and he goes, exactly right. Absolutely right, son. And I just looked at him like I met a god. And I was like, wow. I said, my mother always said I was going to meet you one day. And I'll never forget. He goes, 
Moms are always right, son. Always listen to your moms. Moms are always right. I'm like, you're right. And then I just started talking. I'm like, well, what are you doing here? He goes, oh, I'm in town re recording another record, and I'm going to do the Tonight Show. And I said, are you playing anywhere live? And he goes, not right now, but I'll be back in a few months. I'm going to be playing at Disneyland. You know, you should come and see me. I'm like, oh, buddy, man, I'd love to see you. I shot the breeze with him for about, I don't know, five or ten minutes, and he was standing next to another guy who was obviously a jazz musician. Super sweet to me, gave me his autograph, and I had the audacity to ask him for his address. I said, could I send you like a demo tape of my drumming? I was so stupid thinking like, gee, no one's ever asked Buddy for that. So, uh, <laughs> you know, like every kid in the world saying, will you listen? So, But he actually gave me the, the, the address and his manager, Willard, Willard Alexander, and, and, and all the information. And uh, the only thing I didn't have with the Buddy Rich experience was a photo. But anyway, he told me that he was playing there in April. So uh, moving fast forward, uh, and, and he gave me a big hug, you know, when I left, you know, I, th I think he, he was with another jazz guy. So maybe people have had different Buddy Rich stories. A lot of people will say that he was really mean to them. He said, get out of here or whatever. But I, I was fortunate. I had this incredibly, incredibly positive experience. And he gave me a hug when I left and said, good luck on your drumming. And I said, I'm going to go see you, Buddy, at Disneyland. He goes, all right, I'll be looking out for you. So come April, I got tickets for me and Lenny Kravitz who was nobody at the time. He would eventually go on to become a huge rock star. But I, I got tickets for us to go to Disneyland to see Buddy. So I pull up to Lenny's house. He lived in Baldwin Hills. His mother was the actress who played on the Jeffersons, and his father was a big news guy. And I uh, come to pick up Lenny, and his dad uh, said, what, what are you doing, Lenny? And uh, he said, well, I'm going with Z. We're going to Disneyland. We're going to see Buddy Rich. He goes, uh, no, you're not. What do you mean I'm not? He goes, you didn't do the, the chores that I asked you to do. You're not going anywhere. And he's like, he goes, and his dad's a big jazz fan. He goes, Dad, it's Buddy Rich, the world's greatest drummer. Z got us tickets. He's at Disneyland. I'll do the thing tomorrow. He goes, you're not going anywhere. You said you were going to do it. You didn't do it. You're not. They got in this big, huge fight. Ooh. Very, very uncomfortable to be there and witnessing it. And Lenny's father told him, he said, if you go out that door, Leonard, you better pack up your stuff and plan on not coming back. Ooh. We packed up all of Lenny's crap. We threw it into my 1980 or 79 Omega car that looked like a government official car, <laughs> right. cream-colored car. We threw all his crap in the back of my car. We went to go see Buddy Rich. We dressed up in suits and ties because we were pimped out GQ guys, and we were going to honor Buddy by showing up in suits and ties. And we watched Buddy throw down. And uh, when Buddy did his amazing press roll with the single stroke, we go slow and fast, and, and we were watching him. And I said, Lenny, I said, was it worth was it worth getting kicked out of your house to see this? He goes, damn right it was, and slapped me five. He never he moved in with me, and he never returned to his father's house ever. He was wow. seven. He was uh, barely seventeen years old. Uh, lived with me for a while, then lived in a car, then lived with other people in front of their driveway. Eventually, he would end up taking care of his father, and you know when he became a huge star, and 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 you know giving him money and, and supporting him. But he got kicked out of his house. So this, the moral of the story is it shows you how how much music meant to people from our generation. So much that you were willing to lose your safe dwelling to go see this iconic. Now I told I became friends with Kathy Rich, you know. In the in the 80s, after Buddy died, and I told her the story of her dad and and meeting him on the street and uh, and, the, and the thing, and she just started crying. You know, she was just like, "Wow," you know. And then I told her the uh, 
the story with Lenny Kravitz and I, which was also in the, it was told in the Modern Drummer cover story that we did back in the 2004 or whatever. You did a but, story with Lenny. You guys were both on the cover. Yeah, yeah we were that. both on the cover. Mm-hmm. And we tell, I believe we tell the Buddy Rich story. Yeah. You and, know? and people may not know this, although many do now, but Lenny is himself a great drummer and he's, he's, he plays drums on all his recordings, right? Not all of them, but the majority of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I have played on some, and but he is on the majority of them. But Lenny, when I met Lenny, Lenny was a drummer, and then when he heard me, he said, "I quit." He goes, <laughs> "He goes, you're you're way better than me. I'm I'm sticking to the bass and the guitar." And so every time we played together, it was always him playing the guitar and bass, yeah. which we always played great together. But uh, yeah, so the buddy thing was just an iconic. Uh, I still have the little piece of paper with his autograph and, and the address of his manager. And I showed it. I showed it to Kathy, and she was like, "Yeah, that was the address. He gave you the real one." So you, you might just say there was just. Uh, uh, when I look back on these experiences of, of, of going to the Motown concert, going to the Frank Sinatra concert, meeting all the guys from Earth, Wind and & Fire, meeting Alphonse Bazan, meeting Buddy Rich, uh, I look back on it with this amazing gratitude that my life feels very Forrest Gumpish. Mm. You know what I mean? I, I ended up in these places where I were a poor kid from Compton with no money should have never been in these places with a, an immigrant mother with seven brothers and sisters and living in a car. These things should have never happened. But somehow, serendipitously, it's like I, I wound up in these incredible situations where the people that I dreamt of meeting, and I wrote down in my diary, I'm going to be like Alphonse Muzan one day. One day I'm going to meet him, and, and one day I'm going to meet the Earth, Wind, and Fire. And, you know, and then and one day I'm going to meet Michael Jackson and Jackson 5, and it all happens. You know, so it's, it's, uh, you know, I'm grateful uh, for, for the journey, and it's been fun. And, and uh, like yourself, you know, I'm a complete music fanatic. I have 15,000 CDs in my collection. I think you remember that. It's bigger since you last saw it. Yeah. And I've got thousands of books on music must, must be fun when you move. <laughs> oh, yeah. It took, it took 19 students of mine in Nashville to move me back to L.A. Over nine days, I had 19 or 21 students to help me around the clock to pack up all my CDs, DVDs, videos, albums, I mean, my media center is like it's like a compound. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you saw you saw snippets of it when I used to live in L.A. But it's only grown more ridiculous. But yeah, it's just guys like you and I. It's it's our it's our passion. It's it's not even our livelihood. It's it's our life. You know, we love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, great. And two just things that that have touched me about this interview. I mean, in addition to everything, I mean, your story is is an incredible one, and and your, you know, your your fortuitous. Uh, I should say your, you know, your your force of life, and and it's interesting because knowing you, I've known you now for a long time. Oh, we've long we've time. worked together on things, and you know all kinds of stuff. And uh, that you know what you said at the beginning about your mother and how she, you know, had that book and wanted to go get Frank Sinatra's autograph. And I think that, in a way, personifies your whole approach to your career, which is that you. You you know you just you just go and you just you go for it you know you're not afraid to really go for it if if something is that meaningful to you uh, and and the other thing that <clears throat> um, you know just this idea of dreaming dreaming your way into your reality I think is is a hugely important thing that I don't think a lot of people or enough people necessarily talk about the fact that you wrote this down that you would look in that album and you would see yourself hanging out with these people and that's that's the first step 
you know that's mm-hmm. you're like dreaming your way into reality is what i call it and that that that's you know it's a very powerful lesson for people uh because a lot of people don't even allow themselves to dream about something like that they'll just say oh i'll never meet that person and that's it you know but if you start to say i'm going to even if you have no idea how or what the circumstances right. are but boom you know you just you just make that you the reality in your mind and that's something i really learned from you in a lot of ways too you know well, thank you um, so yeah yeah man well i'm super proud of you know of you know we've known each other for years and years and years and it it, it gives me great joy and great satisfaction to see from when we first met, you know, the different things that I shared with you about, about your dream and your vision. It gives me great joy to see all that you've accomplished, all that you've done, that you've accomplished so much since we did the original commandments of R&B drumming book. And you have uh, inspired uh, countless drummers around the world. You've educated countless drummers around the world. You're a great player. You're a great teacher. You're a great person. But to me, my greatest joy is not um, yes, I, I love sharing, you know, these amazing things that I've been able to do. But but the at this season and for a very long time, as you know me, I'm not my accomplishments are not what's important. What's important is who benefited from my accomplishments. In other words, whose life got better because Zorro lived. That's really the real journey of life, because anybody can be successful, can have all these wonderful things they've done. But if it was just a journey of self then you sort of self-destruct and you miss the whole purpose of it. For me, my whole journey is a journey of service. So if I can inspire, encourage, bless, teach, admonish, direct other people in their life, then that that's the best use of these serendipitous stories and these things. Yes, people have been given an ability to dream. That's a human thing that we all have, but we're afraid to because what if we don't, what if it doesn't happen? So I just, I guess, you know, when one man's spine stiffens, it gives other men a chance to be courageous as well. In a war, if one guy steps out, everybody's afraid, but one guy goes, man, we're taking this mountain, then he stiffens the spines of others. You know what I mean? So that's the classic example of, of leading by example. I, I, you know, So I say all these things with humility because I'm the luckiest guy in the world that any of them happened, but my joy is really seeing someone like you take off and knowing, you know, Yes, you did all the work, but knowing that I played a small role in it, that I was some sort of a pivotal wheel, that if you didn't meet me, maybe it wouldn't shift that way. See, to me, that's what life is really about, because all the guys that we love, they're all dying or dead already. I mean, so they're here, and then they're gone, and you're going, what happened? Like, you know, I loved Indugu, and I loved Alphonse Muzan, I loved Buddy, and all, all these guys, I mean, they're, they're disappearing just like you and I will, and just like all those that are listening will eventually disappear. So to me, it's really about... It's about the legacy of love. It's about, well, yeah, you were a great drummer, but whose life got better because Daniel was a great drummer? Because if it, if it was only yours, then it was just a self-centered journey that didn't, you know, the things that, car- the things that carry on eternally are those things that we sowed into the lives of other hearts. You know, what, what Alphonse did into my heart, you know, is something that, that will, will be with me till I die. You know, and those that we met that really had a, a positive effect on us. I mean, that's what it's about to me that's how he lives on you know as well is, yeah. is the service and good work he did with you and then you know that inspires you to do service and good work for others and that's yeah. you know that's that's how we that's how we will live on after we are gone um that's, that's how our, the, that completes the cycle man yeah, yeah. but I'm, I'm proud of you daniel what you're doing it's been an honor to be on this podcast 
super pumped about all the things that you're doing. And now you're teaching me things. Well, you always have, but you're you're teaching me things, and and I'm growing. You know, we're we're helping each other grow in different ways. And you know, and I'm about to start offering the Skype lessons, and you've kind of taken me under your wing to you know to tell me how to get that all set up, and and I appreciate that. Anything else you want to let folks know about that you're up to? Uh, any cool tours or anything coming up, or new books? No, I have a new book that's out. It's called Soar. Nine Proven Keys for Unlocking Your Limitless Potential. It's a motivation. It's a great book. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's, a life, it's a life book on how to live out this dream. And it's, uh, it's on Amazon. Uh, and it's been in you know, bookstores everywhere. And I've done a lot of television on it. But you can get it off Amazon. You know, just Zorro, Soar, S-O-A-R. Not sore like cold sore or I'm <laughs> sore at you. But sore like an eagle. Uh, yes. So the, the book is out. And, and I'm going to be offering Skype lessons soon and motivational, uh, you know, uh, life coaching and stuff I've always done, uh, like yourself. So for those that are interested, they could just go to my website, which is zorrothedrummer.com and, uh, just send me an email and I'll let them know when I'm ready to do it. Um, yeah. And then I'm, I'm doing, I've been doing some touring with a, a, a Christian famous worship artist named Lincoln Brewster. And so I just did a whole live Christmas album and a concert with him and I'm going to get ready to do some more dates with him. So just a variety of stuff, you know, Fantastic. And I am working on another another book, but it's uh, it'll be my memoir of my life story. Fantastic. Well, if this is anything, uh, even a drop in the bucket, I can't wait for the whole the whole enchilada. You know, it's going <laughs> to be good. Well, All thank right. you, Daniel. Well, thank you, Zorro, for being on the Daniel Glass Show, and uh, it just was a pleasure having you. It's an honor to be here, and uh, hello to all of your fans and listeners out there in the world, and uh, keep your dream alive, and don't let anybody talk you out of it. Keep practicing, and and stay true to the course, and and be what you're supposed to be, and and you'll succeed. Thank you, Daniel. You're awesome, bro. All right, man. Bye-bye. All right. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation with Zorro, and uh, please, of course, if you have any feedback, Uh, I welcome it. You can write to me on Facebook at my Facebook page, Daniel Glass, drummer, author, educator. You can uh, write to us on the podcast, leave a comment. Of course, if you enjoy these podcasts, please uh, leave a positive review for Drummer's Resource on iTunes. And um, if you want to get a master list of all of the episodes of the Daniel Glass Show, you can find one on my website, which is danielglass.com forward slash podcasts that is in the plural danielglass.com forward slash podcasts uh, master list of all the episodes so if you enjoy this there's a real wide variety of stuff that we cover in these podcasts it's always a little different and um, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the Daniel Glass show here on Drummer's Resource Drummer's Resource